You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Good morning, Riverside. I am Andrew, and I have the honor of teaching today. So uh, let's take a moment to pray as we ready ourselves to unpack some of the words of this incredible psalm. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these beautiful words that have spoken and brought comfort to your people for centuries. And Lord, as we unpack a chunk of this passage today, may these words of my mouth and the meditations and the thoughts of every one of our hearts be pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Psalm 30, Psalm 30, Psalm 139 is what it's called. Psalm 139 has been one of my favorite passages of scripture since eighth grade. In the church I grew up in, seventh and eighth graders would have a weekly class called Confirmation. Anybody else familiar with this or went through it themselves? Yeah. Um, it was packed full of church history, basic biblical knowledge, and a really good-sized chunk of Bible memorization. And the biggest chunk of memorization that I remember from those days was Psalm 139. And storing this beautiful poetry in my brain as an early teenager, I think, has really served me well. Constantly reminded, when I've needed to be reminded, that the Lord knows me even better than I know myself. That's always been a comfort to me. And what a gift it is to be able to know him, never being able to flee from his presence. Not in a threatening way, like you can't get away from me, but not being able to flee from his presence in this beautiful and comforting way. There's, there's comforting words to, if I rise on the wings of dawn or I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, even there your right hand will hold me fast. That's a lot more comforting than he knows you if you're bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. That's about a different person, we know that. <laughs> but we didn't memorize the whole psalm in my confirmation class. We memorized most of it, the pleasant bits. Yeah, the pleasant bits, which happened to be most of the bits. But we were early teenagers after all, and you can't expose a bunch of 13-year-olds to all of Psalm 139, can we? It's just plain confusing, isn't it? And so we memorized the entire psalm except for four verses. And you can probably guess which four verses we did not memorize on the first try. It's not a trick question. It is verses 19 through 22. I will reread those verses for you now. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. And here's the kicker. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? and abhor those who are in rebellion against you, I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. This, my friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, right? Um, now, just because we didn't memorize those four verses didn't mean, didn't mean we didn't have access to them, right? So, 
when I saw the citation of what I was memorizing as Psalm 139, verses 1 through 18, comma, verses 23 through 24, I wanted to know the mysteries that lied within that comma, right? What's lurking in verses 19 through 22? So I read them, and my eyes got real big. And I said to myself, yeah, it's probably for the best that we're not memorizing those. And I knew my classmates, and this is why I thought it might have been best that we didn't memorize those. I knew some of them might have been really, really excited to memorize those words. Perhaps a little bit too excited to call down curses on their enemies and lean into total and complete hatred. It feels dangerous to read those words, especially because they are the word of God, right? It feels dangerous. To mishandle words like this could cause serious damage, right? But neither is it helpful to ignore them. To simply replace verses 19 through 22 with a comma is not good enough. So for those of you who are really excited to see that we were talking about Psalm 139 today, I hate to inform you that we are almost certainly not talking about your favorite parts of Psalm 139. We're saving that for next week, okay? This is a two-part sermon, friends. Two-parter. So today, we're digging into my confirmation comma. The four verses that my adolescent brain did not memorize. And in so doing, we'll touch on the category of psalm that we have not touched at all this summer, bearing the ominous title, imprecatory. You heard that word before, imprecatory? Probably not, unless you've read the imprecatory psalms and heard all about them. Uh, to To imprecate, not implicate, but imprecate, is to invoke evil upon someone or to curse them. That's a dictionary definition, to invoke evil on someone or to curse them. So basically, we're dealing with psalms of cursing, not psalms of cussing. That's a little bit different. But actual cursing, actual wishing evil on others. So a list of a few imprecatory psalms if you want to jot them down and save them for later and read them for your devotions. Psalm 58, verses 6 through 11. You know, you, you might be in that season of life right now. And I, I get it. Psalm 69, 22 through 28. Psalm 83, 9 through 18. Psalm 109, 6 through 20. Psalm 137. Oh, this is a tight one. Uh, 7 through 9, the one we just read. And then Psalm 149, verses 5 through 9. And I mentioned, I highlighted Psalm 137, verse 9, because probably the most, the most egregious and most uncomfortable of all the imprecatory phrases in the Psalms is this curse framed as a beatitude in Psalm 137, verse 9. Happy is the one, or blessed is the one, who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. My friends, that is in the Bible. Did you, did you know that already? You might have. If this happens to be your life verse, there's, there's elders available in the back for prayer a little bit later in the service. Um, but seriously, that one is downright gruesome. It's hard to imagine any setting in which it would be appropriate to pray those words in earnest. But it is biblical. It's in the Bible, right? Anything in the Bible is biblical by definition. Uh, 
But if it's biblical, how come it makes us cringe or revolt or cower in shame? For followers of Jesus, the answer to that is pretty simple. Because here's another biblical passage that we heard teaching on just a few months ago from Matthew 5. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This, too, my friends, is the word of the Lord. And these are words of Jesus, which are very difficult to accept and live out themselves, right? This is like the other side. Like dashing children against the rocks is hard to accept as God's word, but so is loving your enemies when you get down to the nitty-gritty of what that actually looks like in your day-to-day life. I think, though, I think that it is extremely safe to say that Jesus' teaching on loving our enemies would preclude us from seizing our enemies' infants and dashing them against the rocks. Yes? Jesus' teaching would forbid us to do that, to live out that passage practically from Psalm 137. Okay. But let's remember that psalms are prayers. Psalms are poetry. Psalms are praise. Psalms are sometimes storytelling. Psalms are wisdom. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, where Matthew 5 comes from that I just read, that is intentional instruction for living in the kingdom of God, right? That is like its basic genre. It is instruction for how to live in the kingdom of God. What's happening in the imprecatory Psalms, and we'll home in on on those verses from Psalm 139, it's happening in the context of prayer. These prayers are not listen to the whole thing I say here. They're not moral and ethical mandates in the same way as Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. But that doesn't get us out of our dilemma completely, does it? Because even prayer and song, sorry, every prayer and song that we sing does in some way shape our moral imagination, right? Our psalms, our prayers, the words that we say together in church, these things shape our moral imagination. So let's keep all that, all that in mind as we look a little more closely at these verses. One, that this is not explicit moral teaching. That's not exactly what's happening here. It does have implications for it, though. And two, that it is part of a prayer and worship book of the community that significantly shapes the moral imagination of the people. But how does it do that? And what does it mean for us as we are shaped by the whole counsel of Scripture. So a little reminder, this is the context in which verses 19 through 21 come. Psalm 139. The first six verses are focused on God's knowledge of us. You, O Lord, have searched me and you know me. And then it's just six beautiful verses on how much and how intimately God knows us. And then the second six verses, 7 through 12, are about how we cannot hide from God. Right? If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, you're, you're there. 
I cannot get away from you, Lord. You are there. We cannot hide from God. And then verses 13 through 18 are this beautiful excursus on how God intimately, lovingly, knowingly, fearfully, and wonderfully makes each and every one of us. How God creates us. Six glorious and beautiful verses on these three beautiful and glorious topics. And then on to verse 19, just kind of out of nowhere. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. Now notice here, David doesn't directly ask God to slay the wicked. But he does mention that it sure would be nice. If only, am I right? He's just dropping hints for the Almighty. You know, if you were to say, slay the wicked, that would be a really great idea, Lord. Just dropping hints for the Almighty. But amid all of David's beautiful poetic reflections on God's presence and provision, it appears that David is ready to throw hands, to fight. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. It feels like an attempt to keep himself away from violence against those violent ones, right? Away from me before I do something I regret. Hold me back, hold me back. Away from me, you bloodthirsty. It's like a, you know, a fight in an NBA game where nobody actually has any intention of hitting another person. But nobody wants to look like they're running away from a fight either, right? Away from me before I do something I regret. And we don't know exactly who these wicked ones are that David's talking about. But David clearly sees the effects of their wickedness, and he envisions that the world would be a better place without those people in it. That's the conclusion he's come to. And the next verse gets a little bit more specific about their wickedness. Verse 20. They speak of you, speaking to the Lord, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. So we see that at the base level, David's not talking about his own enemies. He's talking about the enemies of the Lord himself. He's not mad that they're talking smack about David, but that they're dishonoring God and his name. David is riled up because the Lord's name is being abused by his adversaries. And as king of Israel himself, David knows how powerful words are. Words of accusation against the people in authority. Treasonous disloyalty, right? He knows how much damage those kind of words can cause. But their words are not a personal threat to David. That's not what he's talking about. Their wickedness is standing against God himself. These are the enemies David's talking about here. And David's response in verse 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? And abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing, nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, I don't know about you, but as a kid, I was instructed by my mother not to use the word hate. Anybody? I'm not the only one, right? And here it is in the Bible. And it is not just regular hatred. It is emphatic and decisive hatred. David is like trying to convince the Lord of how much he hates the Lord's enemies, right? He's like, see, see, I'm doing a good job. I am fully and completely and heartfelt hating your enemies, Lord. Aren't you impressed?
It would appear that David really believes in that saying. You may have heard it before. An enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? David's like, see, they're, see, they're my enemies too because I hate them just as much as you do. Get it? The line, I have nothing but hatred for them in verse 22 is translated by Walter Brueggemann literally as, I have perfect hatred for them. Like that perfect love that casts out fear. This is like the opposite of that, perfect hatred. Perfect, complete hatred. But notice that it isn't until the last line that they are mentioned not only as the Lord's enemies, but now because of that fact, because they're the Lord's enemies, now David counts them as his own enemies, right? It wasn't the other way around, and that I think is important here. David is not looking around, deciding who are his own enemies, right? Who the people are, people that have made him mad on his hit list over the years, right? He's not looking around and saying, oh, yeah, now those are the Lord's enemies because they made me mad. No. It's the other way around. The Lord's enemies become my enemies because they stand in opposition to the Lord. I don't get to conveniently look at anyone who stands against me and declare them to be an enemy of the Lord just because they're an enemy of me. Right? These enemies first reveal themselves as enemies of God himself. So it's emphasized in the text, so I want to emphasize it here. So do you see the difference? David is not calling on vengeance to fall in an automatic way on anybody who he disagrees with. He expresses his deepest feelings of hatred, no less, and aggression, but then he leaves it in God's hands. He prays it, he speaks it, he speaks it emphatically, but then he leaves it in God's hands. I think that is one of the values of the imprecatory psalms in the scriptures. These songs expose the reality of hatred and violence and oppression in the human experience, but they leave the action ultimately to God. They make a way of turning the darkest, most shameful, most violent, and hurtful corners of our own souls and giving them over to God in a very profound way. When the wickedness and injustice and brokenness of the world is laid bare, the imprecatory psalms remind us that it is okay to be angry about it. It's even, it's even okay sometimes to be angry at the people who are carrying out those wicked deeds. You feel it, don't you? Have you felt it? You've experienced this? People have made you just so angry because of the evil that they've brought into the world around you, the abuse they've inflicted on other people, whatever it is. Sometimes you see it too. The perpetrators of injustice who make life miserable for others, who stand in the way of their flourishing, that makes you so mad you could curse. Imprecate them, much like David does. Earlier I put those seven psalms on the screen. And all of them have some of these characteristics. They're not the same. Some of them, like the dashing of infants against the rocks, feel downright wrong. But remember that every one of them only exists because there is so much wrong in our world. And we know intimately a God who is in the business of making it all right. A God who searches us and knows us. A God who is always present to us. A God who embodies justice and righteousness in all that he does. That's the God that Psalm 139 
is written about and to. And I know, I know I said that I probably wouldn't talk about your favorite part of Psalm 139, but I know verses 23 and 24 are somebody's favorite. So we are going to cover that. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David has spoken boldly and confidently about his hatred and his cursing of his enemies, of God's enemies. But in these last two verses of the psalm, he returns to, ultimately, humility. The song begins with, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. And now it ends with, me, it ends with search me and know my heart. So may we all be aware with the reality that God knows us more intimately than we can imagine. And that it is in our best interest to continue inviting him to know us more. Even more, more and more. To convict us when we take things too hard or too far. To test us and know every bit of us, including the parts, including the parts of us that just want to slay the wicked. Because giving all of that over to God is, as the psalm says, that is the way everlasting. The way everlasting is the way that brings it all, every little bit of it, every emotion we experience, all of it, to God, every single bit of it. I am a firm believer in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. I hope that was clear from the way we taught the Sermon on the Mount in the spring. I believe in the mandate from Jesus to love our enemies, as difficult as it may be. I believe that. And I believe that the mandate to love our enemies isn't out of character with the God of the Old Testament. It may appear so, but I don't think that that mandate to love our enemies from Jesus is out of character from the God of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, and specifically in David's world, evil was lurking at his doorstep nearly constantly. There was near constant anxiety about how many times, or sorry, about what that evil meant for the people of God. Injustice and wickedness ran rampant, and many times the Lord intervened directly, but a lot of times he appeared silent, and it felt as though evil was getting the upper hand. So in a collection of 150 psalms, of course, at least seven of them would contain some amount or some element of cursing those evil ones who perpetrate it. And you might say, well, how is that different from our world today? Yes, evil continues to be lurking at every doorstep, but but what Jesus accomplished, what Jesus accomplished and revealed to us on the cross is that the powers of evil, death, and the devil are impotent, that they are defeated, and that they have no authority in the kingdom of God. Amen? But the powers do still exist, don't they? And though the evil one's fate is definitively sealed, he continues to throw everything at us in a desperate attempt to take as many down with him as possible. Right? You see it happening. We see it all around us. But I want to remind you, the enemy is defeated. The enemy is defeated. Jesus has assured us of this and has let us know that even when we hate our enemies, 
Even when we feel hatred for our enemies, we must love them. We behave lovingly towards our enemies and the Lord's enemies. We even hold out hope for our enemies because Christ's mercy can penetrate even the hardest of human hearts. Amen? Can he not? God is the mighty and righteous judge. God is the mighty and righteous judge. Notice whose job judging is. His, right? Not ours. His job. And because of that, we forgive again and again, almost unreasonably. We forgive again and again. We lay down our rights and our need to be right. We live in the way of love, even as Psalm 23 reminds us, thanks to last week, even in the presence of our enemies. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. Lord, comfort us. Lord, defend us from your enemies. Search us. Know us. See if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the ways that your word stretches us outside of our comfort zones, the way that your knowledge of us is more than we can comprehend, your presence is so pure that we cannot get away from it. And your creation of each and every one of us so deliberate. And Lord, we, we celebrate those realities, but we also live in a world that is tarnished in so many ways by evil. We experience, we experience that in our relationships. We experience that evil with our neighbors. We experience it as your people together. So Lord, give us the courage to offer our whole hearts, our whole souls, our whole beings to you, Lord. Not to hold anything back because we feel like it's inappropriate or uncomfortable, but to really lay our entire souls bare before you. Before the one who searches us and who knows us, who perceives our thoughts from afar. And Lord, we thank you for being the judge in perfect justice, in perfect righteousness, the one who looks at all that evil and in Christ Jesus takes care of it and will one day eradicate it completely, Lord.
You are powerful, you are mighty, you are loving, you are close. Be close to us as we continue to worship together. Be close to us as we come to your table today. May our coming to the table today be a reminder of the victory that you have won over sin, over death, and over the evil one. As we eat the bread and drink the cup, may they be reminders in our very body that you have already won, that the victory belongs to Jesus. Pray all this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.